and welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, the new president and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I've spent my first few weeks at the council learning about the ins and outs, but also getting to know the staff better. And I'm incredibly excited about all the things that we will accomplish together. And I'm also greatly looking forward to meeting all of you when it's safe to do so. Our program tonight features award-winning author David Michaelis, moderated by historian and lawyer Talmadge Boston to discuss David's new book, Eleanor, an eye-opening portrait of an often misunderstood first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt. Please remember to purchase a copy of the book and you can do so with our partners at Interabang Books. All of our audience receives a 10% discount in the online store by using the code DFWWORLD. And remember, the discount code is good for any of the books in your shopping cart, not just Eleanor. We have a full schedule of virtual programs, so remember to check out our website at DFWWORLD for newly scheduled events. And tomorrow evening on Wednesday the 3rd at 6 p.m. Central, we'll welcome Joby Warwick, national security reporter at the Washington Post and Pulitzer Prize winner for journalism to discuss his new book, Red Line, the unraveling of Syria and America's race to destroy the most dangerous arsenal in the world. He'll be in conversation with our very own Jim Falk. And the council is incredibly grateful for all of its supporters. Tonight, I'm especially, I'd especially like to thank Briggs Freeman Sotheby's International Realty and its president and CEO, Robbie Briggs. Robbie, thank you for your sponsorship of this program, which increases global awareness right here in Dallas. Robbie, thank you very much. And with that, I hand it over to you. Well, thank you very much, Liz. And by the way, welcome to Dallas. And we're very excited to get to know you as well. Um, tonight, it really is my pleasure uh, to first introduce um, Talmadge Boston, who may not need much of an introduction here in Dallas. Uh, as everyone knows, he's a very uh, fine litigator here in Dallas, working for Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton LLP but he's also a good friend. And if you've not had the opportunity before to hear him moderate a panel like this, uh, you're in for a real treat. He, uh, he is he's intelligent, he's inquisitive, and he has, comes up with great questions. Uh, and it's also my pleasure because uh, David Michaelis is our friend and neighbor up in Maine. And so I put the two of them together because I knew it would be a great event and I'm thrilled to be a part of it tonight. One last thing about Talmadge, he also is an author. He's written several books, including Raising the Bar, The Crucial Role of a Lawyer in Society, Cross-Examining History, A Lawyer Gets Answers from the Experts About Our Presidents, and then he's written three about his passion, which is baseball. Um, Talmadge, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to, to interview David. And uh, I look forward to hearing y'all's conversation. Thank you, Robbie. And uh, thank you for introducing me to David <clears throat> uh, and uh, his wonderful new book, 
Eleanor, which I hope everybody uh, after this program, if you haven't already, will, will get it. It's just uh, a dazzling read. Uh, David is, is a very accomplished uh, historian. Uh, this is his third major biography. Uh, the first was of N.C. Wyatt, the great illustrator who was the father of Andrew Wyatt. The second one was on Charles Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts uh, cartoon strip. And then uh, this is the third. Uh, they've all been critically acclaimed and, and uh, have the one on uh, Wyeth won a major national award. So uh, David, we're so glad that uh, you could fit uh, Dallas-Fort Worth into your schedule and uh, welcome to our largely Texas viewing audience. I'm so glad to be here. Glad to see the lights are on and everyone's well and very glad to have Robbie's uh, sponsorship and friendship and, and yours, Talmadge. I, um, I've been reading uh, your wonderful book of interviews of some of the great historians of, of our age. And um, you, you, well, I, I think um, the, the separated at birth with you and Teddy Roosevelt has now haunted me. And I'm, that's, that's where I'm gonna, I'm gonna be looking into the eyes of TR tonight, I feel. I'm ready. Yeah, I had a friend right. who, last, who last week pointed out that if I had a really bushy mustache <laughs> and pince nez glasses, I would look exactly like Teddy Roosevelt. So maybe that's true. But in any case, let, let's get started talking about your, your wonderful book here. And, and whenever I, I open a book, uh, I always pay a lot of attention to, to the epigraph, which is the, the opening sentence or two. Uh, and, and obviously, a lot of thought goes into it, David, because it's, it's often a key that really unlocks uh, the book. And so for your epigraph, you actually chose a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt herself, who once said, quote, I felt obliged to notice everything. Now, David, wax eloquent on why that sentence opens the door to Eleanor Roosevelt for the reader. Well, Eleanor had two superpowers and one of them was noticing, one of them was seeing, and she connected as a human, as a woman, as a friend, as a, even as a parent where she was not as successful, but most especially as a first lady and as a stateswoman, by seeing into people and seeing their, their lives as individuals, every cause, every theme, every uh, important political and, and uh, a humanitarian initiative of her life began, as she often said, by seeing the plight of one person. And I think really the theme of Eleanor is the theme of the individual, the individual in a democracy, the individual in the world. And she was the person who went between the individual and the community and the government and the world. And she was a understander, a observer, but most especially a real noticer of, of people. And that's why I chose that. Um, I think also it's really important to know that she saw um, her husband and saw the important people in her life in a way that you don't see in other biographies. You don't see in biographies of FDR. You have to see it from her point of view. And I wanted the reader to start this book understanding that they were going to be seeing the world from Eleanor's point of view. Mm -hmm. Now, to fully grasp any biographical subject, uh, I think it really is essential to understand their childhood. And so during Eleanor Roosevelt's childhood, she had what could accurately be called the parents from hell. 
So uh, her mother was, was cold and cruel, her name was Anna. Her father was irresponsible and ultimately suicidal. His name was Elliot, he was Theodore Roosevelt's brother. And she described her childhood later as one long battle against fear. So uh, talk about what you believe to be the effect of this terrible childhood on her ultimate development. She wanted, she always said to be loved so badly as a child uh, and wanted so badly to be loved by her father, most of all. Um, you mentioned her mother and how cold uh, her mother was. Her father's love for her was authentic and real uh, and warm. And, and, and he cared deeply that she would be uh, a writer, that she would be uh, a Roosevelt, that she would be uh, a woman who would be able to sit tall in the saddle and, and command the world. Uh, but he wasn't there for her. And ultimately his life, his, his attempts at, at overcoming alcoholism, which left him finally an addict of laudanum, uh, his attempts at uh, uh, recovery were, were exhausted by his early 30s. And he could not be the father that he wanted to be for Eleanor and that she wanted. His, her constant longing, I think, created this lifelong sense uh, that she was unloved, that she could fulfill herself by loving other people, by helping them, by doing something for them. She was, for her father, a sort of super, super daughter. She was wife, daughter, uh, caretaker, all wrapped up in one. And as she saw him once taken out of the house with yet another uh, broken uh, limb from, the, in this case, a society circus where he was going to have to have his broken leg reset when she saw the pain he was in and saw that his entire life was actually on the verge of collapse. Uh, she, became, she, she became um, as a true empath and true daughter of an alcoholic does, she became a, a, a family hero. She, she dedicated herself to being a, her, a heroic woman uh, in, on behalf of her father, and that carried through her whole life, of course. Mm -hmm. Now, she became an orphan uh, before she reached age 10, uh, and then she lived with her maternal grandmother for the next four years in a brownstone with a steady string of nannies who were actually taking care of her. And in your book, you say she was plagued by anxieties with the terror of displeasing the people she lived with and she had no one to love her. So David, play amateur psychologist. How did her tough entry and journey through puberty impact her long-term mental health? I think she, um, she was the family hero. Certainly that is the classic child of, of the alcoholic, but she was also a, um, she was an adapter. And I think it was the beginning of seeing Eleanor Roosevelt's life of adaptation because she was thrown in as an orphan with a family that was filled with glamorous but completely ineffective aunts and uncles who were five, 10, 15 years older than she was uh, they were a coming down from the, the heights of New York society of a generation early. The Hall family was, was falling behind the, the, the Vanderbilts and, and the Whitney's and, and, and Mrs. Astor's ballroom as it expanded from 400 to 1400. Uh, and her mother desperately had tried to, to become a social leader. 
But as after her mother's death from diphtheria and, and Eleanor lived with her grandparents, a grandmother, excuse me, and aunts and uncles, she became their caretaker. She became the one who was the sort of mature, uh, responsible member of the household who would bail out an uncle when he was thrown into, um, into jail in the Tenderloin District in New York. She was fascinated by her aunts, but she was also um, ready to, to take on uh, their, their uh, all, all the sort of wreckage of their love life and their, um, their, their, their breakdowns and their sudden, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a constant psychodrama in the whole household that Eleanor found her way through and became a survivor, became an adapter, became someone who knew how to, um, to bail someone out of jail and someone who knew how to take responsibility far beyond her years, even for burying someone, even for, 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 for seeing someone uh, you know, in, into the grave. Now, right before she turned age 15, uh, she left all that, the grandmother, the nannies, the drama of that brownstone, and went to a French boarding school outside of Paris. And there she uh, encountered the headmistress, Marie Souvest, who was a lesbian, but uh, who certainly had a huge mentoring impact on Eleanor over the next four years. And you say in the book that uh, Ms. Souvestri helped Eleanor find her voice and lose her fears. So how, what was going on there? How, how did this headmistress have that kind of impact on, on her young uh, student? Really by giving her, empowering her to, um, to trust herself in ways that Eleanor, no one had ever trusted Eleanor to trust herself by, in one, in one sense, she, she came into a school, this is outside of London, um, a group of international schoolgirls from, from privileged families around Europe. Eleanor uh, was alone among, um, uh, among a group of women who, young girls who really did not know more than she did. And she actually could speak French fluently at that point because she had had a French governess. She had that advantage. But Marie Servest saw her and saw that she was going to be the one among the schoolgirls of Allenswood School, who was going to be the uh, more responsible, more grown up one, the one who could do the things that Marie Suvest wanted girls, young women to do, which was to think for herself. And that was her great lesson was think for yourself, make, form your own opinions, uh, use your mind. And the, this was a time where young women's uh, education was thought of as potentially harmful to their mental health. So, so there was a Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. A, a, a sudden sense for Eleanor that she was in a place that she could blossom, she could, she had, had confidence being uh, being uh, herself, she could sit opposite Marie Suvest and whoever Marie Suvest guest was from, you know, the the whether it was uh, G. B. Shaw or 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 one of the Strachies, she she could follow along with adults and carry her own in a conversation and begin to su suddenly uh, express ideas, something she'd never uh, been actually 
even thought to do before, uh, that she had thought to do before, and was never expected of her. Suddenly, it was expected that she become a uh, sort of a, a young intermediary, a statesman going in between the young girls from other countries and, and Marie Suvest as a, she was a kind of dictatorial head, head uh, mistress and Eleanor could found ways of uh, subtleties and nuance of diplomacy. And she had a great, one great friend who came from Texas, Nellie Post, a great, from a big family, um, it, one of the largest ranches in Texas. She was, she was kind of a rebel and Eleanor defended her when Nellie Post threw an inkwell you know, at their, at their German teacher and Marie Servest uh, took her uh, case under consideration. Eleanor argued for her that she should stay, she should be forgiven and Nellie Post was, was thrown out forthwith. Um, it was the first time really that Eleanor became the, the advocate for somebody else and, and, and actually had made a good friend and, and who, who understood her. And it was a, actually a great loss for Eleanor at, at that school. So when she finished at the school, she came back to the United States and she was almost 18 in the fall of 1902 when she started seeing her cousin, Franklin Roosevelt, who she had known as a child, but started seeing him regularly at uh, debutante parties. And so they became attracted. So, so, so what was going on between Eleanor and young Eleanor and young Franklin Roosevelt? What was well, the attraction? Were, I always thought of it as a compact of oddballs because they were both outsiders and odd ducks in their world. Um, one thing that's really important to understand about Franklin at that moment was that he was as in love with Theodore Roosevelt as he was with any other human being besides Franklin Roosevelt. And I'm kidding around just to say his hero was Eleanor's uncle. And Eleanor's uncle was the president of the United States and not just the president of the United States and who, who, who looked a little like Talmadge Boston at the moment, <laughs> but he was the, the man of the world who People looked at Theodore Roosevelt and said, that is something new, not just in politics, not just in the American presidency, but in the world. And Franklin uh, looked at Theodore, uh, had, had been studying his every move. I mean, everything down to how many children Franklin and Eleanor ultimately had was shaped and modeled on, on Theodore Roosevelt. And so this was the niece of the president. People always think, oh, you know, Eleanor, the sort of uh, plain Jane was, was, was lucky to have married uh, this glamorous, dashing young, young prince from Groton and Harvard. Well, actually it was the other way around, just socially. And in fact, in fact, the newspapers didn't even know Franklin's name at the time. He was sort of called Franklin B. Roosevelt or, or you know, they always were making mistakes when, when his name appeared in the paper. And Eleanor was a glamorous niece of the President of the United States who had a lovely quality and the, that quality was a kind of vulnerability. Um, she had charm aplenty. She was a cousin. They were fifth cousins. She called Franklin's mother, cousin Sally. She was practically, well, she was, she was part of the family. And Franklin's, uh, her father had been Franklin's godfather. They were, they were ultra related. They were a, already a paired, a matching pair uh, in, in, in the, um, you know, in, in, the, in the deck of cards. They, they, they look great together, but as I mentioned, they were oddballs. And I think that really attracted them to each other. Uh, neither had great social success with their peers. And I think it was one thing that you could see right away uh, on a honeymoon that was otherwise very difficult in certain ways. They covered for each other when people challenged them on certain things, questions about America, about the American government. Franklin covered for Eleanor. Eleanor covered for Franklin when the 
uh, at the local flower show when he was asked, you know, how, how Americans prepared vegetables and he could not answer. He hadn't prepared a vegetable in his life. And Eleanor covered uh, quite neatly for him. They automatically began as a team uh, taking on each other's, you know, moments uh, of, of stress or, or trial and, and, and smoothing them out. It's kind of lovely also to see how Franklin's attempts to shake Eleanor, she was unshakable. And it was a, a part of their partnership that began right away. Now, if they had stayed a two-person team, then perhaps their relationship would have been different and better. But in fact, as she learned upon getting married, it was a three-person team with Eleanor Franklin and his mother, Sarah, who was always around. And the, that threesome is one of the most intriguing triangles uh, in, in American history. So uh, give, give your perspective on the challenge of, of having your mother-in-law basically in the middle of everything you were doing uh, yeah, as, as a newly married. There are two parts to it. And the first part is to see that Eleanor, who did not have a mother, and had not really had a mother, needed a mother, and in a way, at the very beginning, took on Sarah as much as she had taken on Franklin as part of her great close emotional needs. She adored um, Sarah at the beginning, but very soon, and it was really with children, as children came along, that Eleanor became displaced entirely. And, and you know, the best way of thinking about this is imagine the day when your firstborn child was uh, you know an infant in the crib and 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 crying cried out in the night. If you were a parent, you know if you if you were a parent of a newborn, you go rushing to that crib and you make sure you can do something for that child. Um, you you know you bring along Doctor Spock or or what to expect when expecting or one of these books um, nowadays um, that that people learn from. Those days there were no books. Um, and Eleanor, by the time she got to that crib, when she heard her first child. Um, uh, Anna Roosevelt crying out, there was already not just a maid, uh, a, a nanny, a governess, a nurse taking care of the child, but Sarah had already given the orders to the nurse that castor oil should be administered, and the nurse was already taking care of the child. Eleanor was shut out as a mother, and she allowed herself to be shut out uh, very um, decisively in where they would live, how they would live, what even the decorations and e even up to and including when they began living with uh, Franklin's mother, you know, she would put a, a bouquet of flowers in a vase and she'd come back in the room an hour later and the vase would have been moved and she'd move it back to where she had placed it. And then she'd leave the room when she came back in. Strangely enough, it had been moved again. So Sarah would not let her be, would not, and Eleanor did not ever say, you know, I'm drawing the line, this is my turf. Franklin, very importantly, never challenged his mother or very early on made clear that Eleanor and Sarah were to be the, the team here and, and Franklin was to be consulted when, when needed. He had other things to do, including getting ready to run for president of the United States. Now, Eleanor and Franklin had six children during the first decade of their marriage. One child died in infancy. Uh, give us your evaluation of Eleanor as a mother and Franklin as a father. Franklin as a father had had a father himself who was with whom he had a lovely relationship. Uh, Franklin's father was much older uh, than he and died when Franklin was a, a senior in, in, in college. But he, he had a sense of fathering and he had a sense of playfulness and fun and that's what he had. 
with his children. He gave them nicknames. He was the one they came to to be tickled. And, you know, there was physical affection from Franklin. Um, th th there was a moment when uh, in 1920, uh, 1921, where, uh, sorry, 1919, where um, the Roosevelt's uh, were living across from Attorney General Palmer, a bomb set by an anarchist exploded. The Palmer's house was shaken. The Roosevelt's house was shaken. Windows broke. And the Roosevelt's who were coming home rushed in through the front door. Upstairs was uh, James Roosevelt, their second son. Franklin dashed up the steps and gripped the boy. He said, James said he never forgot how tightly his father held him. And, you know, James, James, how are you? you know, are you okay? And Eleanor, meanwhile, was downstairs taking care of business, making sure the Palmers were all right, making, sending someone over to the Palmers, calling for ambulance. E Eleanor was the, always the one executively in charge in, in the house and of the children. She was the one who listened to their prayers at night. She was the one who did the unfun things. She was um, also a woman who, in her childhood, was not supposed to show anger. She was not supposed to show grief. She was not supposed to show really much emotion at all. And so her essential disciplinary tactic was to say nothing at all. And, and that will drive kids nuts. I mean, she, she would withdraw. When, when angry, she would withdraw. When, 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 when she had something to say, she said it with silence. And we, we call this now passive aggression. And, and it, it, it was very aggressive in Eleanor's case early on in her life before she had grown and learned, learned uh, how to be her, her better self. Her children bore the brunt of that as children and uh, later bore the brunt of Franklin's polio uh, in their teenage years. And the two together gave them, gave their, gave the Roosevelt children a really tough, a tough childhood. Yeah, now, uh, during the early years of their marriage, uh, it was not uh, blissfully happy uh, because of these, of the mother, Sarah, because of Eleanor's way she dealt with issues by, by going uh, silent. Uh, and you say that it, it made them during the early years of the marriage, quote, turn outward because, quote, they could not make each other happy, quote, they could scarcely relax with each other. So besides uh, Sarah Delano Roosevelt, what was the biggest source of their disconnect? Well, Franklin was a deceiver by nature and Eleanor was a seeker of truth. I mean, I think at the core, that's gonna always create problems where, where one is dedicated to truth and, 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 to, and to getting at it and the other is dedicated to eluding it and, and, and not being quite clear and or openly deceiving. And, and this came to pass, of course, by the time uh, FDR was a assistant secretary of the Navy and they were in Washington, in Woodrow Wilson's Washington, where they had moved in 1913. And by 1914, of course, the, world, the, the, the Great War had begun. And by 1917, 1918, America was in the war and Franklin was fully engaged in, in not just saber rattling as he was in 1914, as we were still neutral, but as a very highly committed militaristic uh, global reaching uh, assistant secretary of the Navy. His life at that time was thoroughly caught up of course in work, but also in a young woman that he had fallen in love with Lucy Mercer. And you can see when 
Eleanor discovered this affair that her husband was having with uh, his, her social secretary, Lucy had come into the house as Eleanor's social secretary when she was yet pregnant again and, and needed more help with the, with the duties of a, a political wife. Eleanor responded to the discovery in a very characteristic way, which was to feel that the world was falling away from her, to feel that she was utterly alone once again, but also to quite clearly see that there were limits to her relationship with Franklin. She offered him a divorce. He did not want a divorce. He wanted uh, political um, life still. It would have probably ended his political life or at least cast great shade over it. Um, a Catholic, uh, uh, a, a divorced Catholic woman, uh, I'm sorry, a, a, a Catholic woman marrying a divorced man would not have been a, a happy ticket in 1920, 24 or 28 uh, necessarily. Um, she looked at Lucy, she looked at Franklin, she saw the reality and she accepted it. Um, she also accepted that their partnership could be something besides what it had failed to be. Um, and I think that's what she stayed for. She stayed with Franklin because she respected, admired, indeed loved him, but also felt strongly that there was so much between them politically and otherwise, even though she had not yet discovered politics herself, but that she could be there for him. And she wanted that, I think, more than anything. Now, after the war, shortly after the war, August 18, 1920, the American voting population doubled with the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. How did that impact Eleanor Roosevelt? It gave her her career. Uh, she was immediately important to Franklin. Uh, she was immediately important to Franklin's advisors. As Franklin ran a campaign uh, as vice for vice president, he was a vice presidential nominee with James Cox in 1920. The whistle stop tour that Eleanor joined as Franklin went across the country with his small nucleus, a new sort of new team of young men uh, as they whistle stopped uh, in this campaign. Eleanor began to be consulted by Louis Howe, FDR's advisor since his days in Albany as a state senator. Um, Eleanor had never liked Louis. She got on the train um, groaning, thinking she would have to spend any time with Louis Howe. And by the end of that trip, they were the closest of uh, friends and ad advisors. He, he consulted her constantly on issues that would pertain to the women's vote, to, to this entire new uh, uh, part of the electorate that, that she could represent. It also, as time went on and, and with polio, which itself is another story, but she in creating a Roosevelt presence in New York politics on her own, had women to center her focus on. She was a, uh, the head of the women's division of the Democratic Party in New York. It was organizing women, seeing that women needed advice on how to vote, who to vote for, how to, how to even think about politics, that Eleanor could go town to town, house to house, driving her own car, being a new woman, as it was called in the 20s, uh, it gave her a, a reason beyond simply the reason that Franklin's polio uh, put a stop for a, a, a short time to his career, but it gave her her raison d'etre. And, and I think there could have been nothing, with, without it, she would have had a very different trajectory. Well, uh, a year after the 19th Amendment passed in 1921 was when Franklin Roosevelt contracted polio. 
and lost the use of his legs for the rest of his life. Their son, John, who was five and a half years old at the time, later said, quote, from then on, I had no parents. So uh, how did Eleanor Roosevelt respond to her husband's polio? The, the earliest days, which we, were all, we all are aware of from Dari Shari's drama, Sunrise at Campobello, when polio struck the summer of August, uh, August of 1921, uh, were a melodrama that Eleanor and, and uh, Louis Howe were the heroes of. They, they immediately responded to the peril, the, the physical and also existential peril that polio brought to Franklin Roosevelt. He, he felt, he was a man who did not go to church a great, I mean, he went to church to show that he belonged in church. He didn't, and he, and he prayed and, 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 and uh, worshiped in church and he had a great faith. But he was breezy, he was light. He was a lighthearted man who loved his tribe and his place in the world. At Campobello, he felt God had literally abandoned him. He, he felt utterly never expecting to ever find himself in this place. He felt as if everything had come to an end and that there was nothing in the universe that could possibly be uh, warm or kind or loving. Eleanor and Louis, put hands on literally to, 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 to see him through this uh, very, very dark night of the soul, dark nights of the soul. Um, and once that passed, once it was clear that he was not going to die, it was clear that he could survive, that he could recover, but the question was how much. For the next eight years, Franklin's mission in life was to recover his body. And I think, you know, to make a long story short, Eleanor's realization that she did not have a large role to play day to day in that recovery, but that she could play a role in becoming eyes and ears for Franklin as she strode out into the world, making speeches, traveling through New York State, organizing, that she created a context for a Roosevelt in public life, um, a Franklin Roosevelt, a Franklin a Franklin Roosevelt team that she was the, the leader of, uh, de facto uh, leader of at that time, that created for him a context in which he could see her out there doing that and, and, and retain a great deal of, um, uh, he, he stayed in touch with the party, he stayed in touch with the world. Uh, he himself, I think, was a example to her uh, without question of perseverance and, and, and a constant, um, uh, uh, the, the daily struggle to recover his, his limbs, his legs. Uh, he never did. Uh, she saw him at these moments and barely could barely control herself um, at, at certain times where he tried to crawl across the floor. Uh, the, the physicality of polio was something that was difficult for both of them, but changed them both. It also allowed them both to feel uh, much more to feel they were out of the, 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 the world of their privileged peers. They were living in a sort of outside world. Franklin was on a, on a houseboat in Florida for seven years straight. He had a new, um, he had a new wife in effect, uh, Missy Lahand, who was taking care of everything for him. Um, Eleanor was uh, in New York in politics. He was at Warm Springs with Missy. Eleanor was with her friends at Balkill. He was at Warm Springs um, with the woman who helped him figure out how he was going to 
um, walk once he got regained control of his legs, how he could swing his hips in a, in a sort of uh, um, simulacrum of walking, not really walking, but it looked like walking and looked enough like walking that when 1928 came around and the Houston Convention uh, in the summertime um, was, was, was nearing, Eleanor wrote to Franklin and said, I'm telling everyone you're going and that you're not using crutches. And, and so you, you'd better be ready. And she, she was very much the goad at that point. Uh, she was the one who connected Franklin up literally on the phone the, the night Al Smith needed Franklin to run for governor uh, in New York in 1924. Um, and, and that was, I'm uh, sorry, 1928, I beg your pardon. Um, there was a moment where uh, Smith couldn't find Franklin to ask him to run for governor. And it was Eleanor who, who, who put him up to it and put him on the phone while Missy Lahan was saying, no, you must stay in Warm Springs and continue your, your, your rehabilitation. You need another year or two to, to really get control. And he vaulted into New York politics um, more or less on Eleanor's, on, on, on Eleanor's springboard, from Eleanor's springboard. And, and from then on, it, it, was, it was a straight line. Um, mm -hmm. There was a moment, I think, where you have to see the same Eleanor's, the same Eleanor who saw that she couldn't help Franklin in recovering his legs and recovering his life after polio was, was the Eleanor who then asked him as she prepared for the White House when, when he was elected president, what can I do? Can I take care of your mail? And, and, and Franklin Roosevelt said to his wife, no, you, you'll, you'll be intruding on Missy, uh, on, on Missy Lahand. That was the moment where I think Eleanor realized she had to make her own way as first lady. And, and that's a great, one of the great turning points in her life. Well, in connection with her making her own way as first lady, uh, your book uh, makes it clearer than any prior uh, biography of Eleanor Roosevelt that she was definitely bisexual. Uh, she had uh, an intimate relationship with at least one woman while she was first lady, uh, Lorena Hickok. Uh, of course, she had had uh, a relationship with her husband to have six children. And she had other uh, very tight relationships with other, there's a picture of Lorena Hickok with, with uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, but she had tight relationships with other women, with other men. Uh, and, and so uh, this is really uh, an important part of the story that no biographer had really gone deep on uh, so, so David, did, knowing you know what a national hero uh, Eleanor Roosevelt is and has been, regarded as our most prominent uh, and influential first lady ever, uh, did you have any concerns about uh, telling that story? Well, when I when I started, um, I was following on the the in the footsteps of a three volume biography by Blanche Wiesen Cook, in which Eleanor was introduced to the world at that time uh, as a, more or less, I'm being reductive, but a radical lesbian feminist. And there were aspects of all of that that were true. Um, there were aspects of all of that that were unfortunate in, in, in a, as a label. And when I began, if you went to Google search, the, 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 the Google feature that tells you what the next most asked word is in a question. For, in, for instance, you type into Google, is George Washington? The next most asked at this very moment might be, is George Washington alive? Or is George Washington a uh, 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 communist? It, whatever is on people's mind about George Washington, you'll see right then and there in Google. 
in, with Google search in 19, uh, sorry, 2009, is Eleanor Roosevelt, the next most asked word was gay. It was the, what people understood about her from Blanche Wiesencook's work. And Blanche really had discovered not just that Eleanor was gay, but that she was passionate, that she had a life, that she had an inner life, that she was, before Joe Lash um, and, and earlier biographers had treated her as a woman who had not been responsive sexually, had not been someone where, who was interested in passion, in, in, the, in the intimacies of, of, of a love affair. Uh, uh, Blanche Cook did Cook did, did a service to the, to the historiography of Eleanor by taking the letters that had been at the FDR library for a while, the letters between Lorena Hickok, the AP reporter whom Eleanor had fallen in love with on the campaign trail in 1932, and really recognizing in them a passionate love affair. Uh, she was much derided at the time, saying people who known Eleanor and, and, and other historians saying, Mrs. Roosevelt wasn't gay. That you know, this is this is something that can be read into these letters, or these are the letters. This is the way people wrote. Women wrote to each other. Um, you know, in, in earlier times, and Eleanor was still writing that way. It wasn't really true. I read, sat down, and what I was worried about as a writer and as a uh, uh, as a historian was, what do you can't be in the room, but you can make a great deal. Um, you, can, you can make out a lot from letters and you can make out a lot from two people who are talking to each other about each other's bodies, about each other's souls, about each other's, you know, about the, 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 the corner of, 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 of one or the other's lips. There, there was so much intimacy, there was so much desire, there was so much discussion uh, of, their, of their intimate life together. It would be impossible to, to ignore or to say, this was not a physical relationship. It was, it's demonstrably a physical relationship and an erotic relationship and a, and a incredibly educational relationship on the point of, from the point of view of Eleanor who learned how to be so many things through Lorena Hickok, including a really good, she was herself, um, Lorena, one of the great reporters of her age. And she taught Eleanor a great deal about reporting and about using her own opinions as ultimately um, a, a columnist, a syndicated columnist. What I felt strongly was that I saw as well that Eleanor's, especially in later life, and I, this was where other biographers had not really yet put down, uh, you know, a, a, a real sounding, was that the later the, the the relationship of her later life was with her doctor, a man named David Gurevich, the the man that she declared in letters and uh, you know in diary form and others as one of the most important loves of her life. You you couldn't suddenly see that here was someone who had had a life as a gay woman who was now falling in love with her doctor. Um, I think the thing that Eleanor taught me was that she was adaptable, she was flexible, but what she was was someone who needed love. And she saw it wherever it came to her uh, and grasped for it, reached for it. Sometimes it was consummated, sometimes it was not. And she was simply somebody who craved closeness and craved intimacy and did not put fine points or labels on it and certainly didn't play identity politics or take as her identity some form or another of sexuality. I think she would have laughed or scoffed at that. Uh, I think that was not what identity was for her. So I felt strongly that the letters, had I not had Lorena Hickok's letters, had do, if we did not have them, it would be very hard to understand her, but that those letters are, are as explicit as can be.
Well, recognizing that she was finding intimacy with other people uh, over the course of time. Uh, nonetheless, your book makes clear that while he was governor of New York and while he was president of the United States, uh, Eleanor and Franklin developed a working partnership where they could share their strengths and they had an unalterable understanding of teamwork. So explain with the separate lives from an intimacy standpoint, uh, how this teamwork gelled uh, between them. Well, Franklin um, saw himself, Franklin saw the presidency as himself as president. And by that, I mean, he was, Hoover, his predecessor had made the American executive, the, the office of the presidency untouchable. I mean, you would have as much luck uh, getting Hoover to take care of you or look after you as I would, you know, calling up the chairman of Verizon right now to talk about my bill. But then suddenly along comes Franklin Roosevelt and performs this miracle of humanizing the American presidency and allowing people, getting people to think and understand and believe that he cared for them one-to-one-to-one, -to -one -to -one, that he would take care of your phone bill, that he did care about how you were going to pay your phone bill. <clears throat> and in that sense, his caring or his interest in taking care of each individual, taking care of the American people and making a better, literally a better life for each person in America. This sounds like campaign rhetoric, but in Franklin's case, it was genuinely, it was genuinely his, his mission. And in the depths of the depression, uh, it was not just his mission, but, but the necessity of, of moving the country at all. Uh, Eleanor could respond to this and had been responding to it for about eight years, seeing in Franklin and she herself introduced him to that side of life as a settlement house worker when they were younger people. But seeing in Franklin someone who, as governor of New York, had taken the themes of the progressive era, had taken the, the needs of, uh, the, uh, uh, of, the wor of the American worker, uh, of, uh, of where, where health concerns uh, were, were, were still paramount, uh, and, and doing something about it. He was, he was an action uh, politician. She was an action politician. They, they matched in so many ways as they dealt with problems. They were both trial and error people. They both saw the problem, tried a method. If it didn't work, they tried again. They both had those, the, the same instincts. He also understood that he could use her uh, to um, persuade people. Uh, he, Franklin constantly was consulting with Eleanor's team of women about issues um, and uh, Esther Lape, uh, Marion Dickerman, Nancy Cook. He brought them all in individually or as a group constantly to, to discuss. He, they were part of his, not literally part of his brain's trust, uh, the, the group that went to Washington and became his cabinet, but they were constantly consulted as she was. And she was not just a goad, but she was a, um, she was out front of Franklin saying, you, you need to look at this issue and bring that in here. And he would say, you know, you're absolutely right. Or he would say, I can't do that now. No one's going to let me do that. That's, that's, that's not, we're not ready for that. Um, she was ahead of him on certain key issues uh, and, and he knew it. And I think he always was looking to her and that played out all through the presidency uh, right down into 
the, the, the disastrous decision to put the Japanese Americans on the West Coast into internment camps. And it was there that when Eleanor, as the co-director of the Office of Civil Defense, he knew he could call upon her to go into those camps and, and, and negotiate and talk to people and, and soothe wounds and, and heal. I mean, first ladies were, are today often single issue um, figures. You know, um, someone, uh, Mrs. Bush had literacy, I, I, I think it was. Um, uh, Mrs. Obama had, had uh, um, uh, diet and, and, and health. Um, Eleanor was not a single issue first lady. She was not a, a single issue healer. She was a holistic healer. And she sort of saw her, not sort of, she saw her role as a healer of all Americans. She saw herself as being the, the, uh, the, the frontline worker. It was something that she had uh, a first responder. She had developed during the First World War in a Red Cross can, can, canteen. And it was part of her expansion of the role both of First Lady, but also of America itself, that, that America's job was to take care of all Americans and, 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 and the government's job was to take care of all Americans. Now, of course, Franklin died in uh, April of 1945, or maybe March or April, whenever it was. And uh, Eleanor was a widow uh, for 17 years until her death in November 1962. So during those 17 years, uh, she did many things, but truly an international figure. But, but what do you regard as, as the high point of, of her achievements post-Franklin? Well, Henry Kissinger said about her uh, in the post-war years that she was a, she was not a cold warrior, but she understood the Cold War and she really understood the Soviets and she really understood that we had to be, and that in order to negotiate in a two superpower world in which we still had the secret to the atomic bomb and, and the Soviet Union was catching up and then and then became our nuclear uh, equal. She knew that we had to define our role uh, without looking carefully, um, uh, without looking too carefully into the eyes of the Soviets. Uh, she never blinked. She was a tough negotiator. I see. I think that she brought a kind of calmness to U.S.-Soviet relations uh, with the, in the UN. I think she understood that we were going to. Um, be dominated someday um, by China and she brought China into negotiations in ways that even then statesmen were not doing. Uh, Churchill had predicted it, but uh, Eleanor picked up on it. Um, she was very instinctive and very intuitive. I see her greatest um, accomplishment without question as the uh, creation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is the document that was ratified or, 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 or voted in by the UN on December 10th, 1948, after Eleanor had um, brought together, you know, 56 nations to decide what a human being is and how we all uh, will define that and how we will give each other respect, how we will uh, abide by each other's humanity, how each of us deserves these these simple rights, these these clear uh, and simple rights. There is no question that what she did was close to a miracle because if you think about that many different cultures, that many different 
uh, uh, politicians and, and statesmen trying to decide on almost anything, let alone uh, all, all, all of what humanity was going to regard as the rights of people everywhere at, for all time. Um, it, it's, a, it's an almost impossible task that she, she pulled off and, and in many ways, I think, created a world that saw at least its most noble or idealistic version. Um, it, it, was, it, was a, um, it was a high point in her own life. Um, I, she was the descendant of signers of the Declaration. Uh, she's a descendant of, of the Livingstons who, who were involved in, in, in the Declaration of Independence. It was a sort of fulfillment of her own um, ideas that had been shaped by the First World War uh, uh, of world government. And it was a, a certainly a fulfillment of Franklin Roosevelt's ideas for how, how the world could save itself from another, another war. Uh, we forget now, just the way we forget what an enormous figure Franklin was as a, as a soldier of freedom, how, what he meant to the world. Um, so many histories and so many television series and so forth sort of shrink the Roosevelts. They were, they were symbols of, of freedom, of, of, human, of human striving and freedom. And I think that she, above all, um, with the Declaration of Human Rights, made it clear that what she stood for and was, was, um, was representing was the individual in the world and, and the, the right of the individual, of each individual everywhere to be, to be, taken, uh, to be taken seriously and, and to be cared for. And it was, her, it was her signature. And I don't think there's anything else in her life that matches it, um, but it stands alone as a sort of Everest in her life. We have a couple of minutes left and we have a couple of questions from the audience that want to know about Eleanor's relationship with two different women, uh, very different women. Uh, one is Alice Roosevelt, her cousin, and the other is Frances Perkins. So speak to the relationship she had with those two women. Alice and she were born the same year and they were both the odd ducks out in their own particular um, families. Um, Elliot Roosevelt uh, and Theodore Roosevelt were their fathers um, and Anna and Eleanor were immediately cast as rivals and they were somewhat rivalrous. They were, they were uh, uh, debutante girls together. Alice, the more wild and, 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 uh, and daring of the two, always sort of chiding Eleanor. Um, about you know just wanting to have pillow fights instead of actually going out and kissing boys, um, she was a Alice was a constant uh, uh, sort of needle in Eleanor's side, always sort of needling her. But Alice had genuine affection uh, for Eleanor and and actually genuinely admired her. Uh, Eleanor was the person who always uh, set the standard for goodness or for for doing what Theodore Roosevelt hoped his daughter would do. And, and therefore, um, she, was the, she was the standard that, that Alice was never quite coming up to. Um, they, 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 they flanked each other all their lives. They never really worked on anything together substantively, but I think that they both constantly pushed each other along. And um, there's a wonderful book called Hissing Cousins uh, about their relationship that I strongly recommend. Um, Frances Perkins and Eleanor we're not as close as is often thought because they're very alike in certain ways politically. The thing I always think about when I think of their relationship was that Eleanor, when she was first lady of New York and in charge of the executive mansion in Albany, um, would have guests there constantly. And Frances Perkins, um, the, the young activist and the labor activist, uh, uh, just beginning to, to do 
work with Franklin Roosevelt as governor uh, in, the, in the Roosevelt uh, administration in New York, spent a night at the mansion where Eleanor and she stayed up all night in side-by-side -side brass beds, brass single beds. And Eleanor told her the whole story of her life. That, that was the kind of thing that Eleanor did when she was felt she trusted someone or was close. And she and Frances Perkins drew close on that one particular evening where Frances Perkins listened, you know, sort of agog to this awful childhood that Eleanor had had. And always, and when she wrote about Eleanor later, she said it really established a relationship with them that they never rekindled, but that made them friends for the rest of their life. And she was very sympathetic to Eleanor as Eleanor was to her. Well, that's terrific. So I'll turn it over to Liz. Uh, thank you, David. What a great uh, thank you, program Tom. and coverage of uh, one of our most important uh, American heroes. Well, thank you both for an excellent discussion. And that was a great deep dive. So thank you. Thank you. And again, just one last time, I'd like to re remind our viewers to pick up a copy of Eleanor at Interabang Books and use code DFWWORLD uh, for 10% off your entire online purchase. And to catch up on our past programs, head on over to our YouTube channel at DFW World. And if you're not a member of the council yet, please join us. We'd love to have you uh, more at events and I look forward to meeting you in person. Visit dfwworld.org for more information on membership. Thank you again, gentlemen, and have a good evening. <laughs>